Uh, so talking acoustics uh, this time around, we've got Dr. Libby Sander, who's MBA director at Bond University. Um, what does that mean? How, how do you explain what your job is to someone what, at a barbecue? Well, that is all of this jargon. So essentially, I'm an academic who works in a business school at Bond University, and I look after our Master of Business Administration program is one of my hats where people who are often looking to uh, advance the next step in their career, do something new, maybe start their own business, will come back and do what is probably the most popular degree in the business school, which is, you know, the MBA. It's been around for ever in a day, but I also have a research hat and do a few other things as well. And so we're here because we're going to talk about workplace and acoustics. Um, what's the link there? How, why does the MBA director have uh, an, interest in, an interest in that? Yeah, it's a good question. So with my research hat, my research and what I did my PhD on is the physical workplace environment and how it influences our brains our physiology, things like our stress level, our mood, our performance on tasks, our creativity, how well we collaborate or don't collaborate with other people. And so that research has taken a few different directions. Sometimes it's at quite a broad level where we're looking at the whole of the workplace environment, but quite often it's looking at specific things like what makes an open plan office work or not work, what do people hate about their workplace? What causes them stress? And the number one thing that comes up in the modern workplace is noise. Hmm. Well, there's uh, open office obviously has a lot of um, different affordances to um, you know a, a discrete office model or a private office um, sort of split. Um, but the noise environment in open plan office obviously has some drawbacks. Um, do you have any guidance um, that you think would be helpful for the acoustic design community about these spaces? Yeah, you're right. There is a big spectrum of open plan office and it's hard when we use that term because we're lumping in a whole lot of different things because let's be honest, open plan offices can work if they are thoughtfully designed with the human at the centre, thinking about the type of work that needs to get done, the type of person who's doing it. So the biggest thing to think about is getting rid of, you know, the acres of open space where you've just got, and hopefully this doesn't happen much anymore, but, you know, lots and lots and lots of desks that are unremitted by any other sort of feature. So what works is to have smaller areas that suit different types of work that people can relocate to. So we might have some zones that are just designated for quiet, concentrated work, others for collaborative space, um, you know, team-based zones. But throughout that, I think what we've seen in the research and in best practice is that there is a combination of elements that will help both from an acoustic application perspective, whether that be, you know, the physical application of acoustics or things like soundscaping. But interestingly, other things can also have an effect on the perception of noise. So, using you know attractive visual elements even like rows of trees can make it seem like a space is less noisy um even though the trees themselves inside an office probably aren't really doing anything at all acoustically but i think it's this idea that it just breaks up the space and people feel more uh, less under what we would call like a psychological threat um, in a space where it's beautifully designed, where they feel comfortable psychologically and physically, then 
their issue with things like noise might be less if we have these features than we come in and there's dozens of desks and grey carpet and that's about it. Mm. So Open Office has, pre-COVID, has had some uh, some issues. Um, now in this sort of post-COVID uh, world, this hybrid work model is, is pretty dominant in, in the commercial space. Um, and we've transitioned to that over a very short space of time, you know, in, in, mm-hmm. in context. Um, are the design community and employers moving fast enough in how we respond uh, to the, you know, workplace design and, and um, set up? Um, and is there something that we should be doing differently? Yeah, I think one of the issues at the moment is that there's this dichotomy of the conversation. You know, we've got the Elon Musks of the world saying it's immoral to work from home <laughs> if you have a laptop, um, to, you know, the banks in some cases overseas trying to get people back in the office five days a week. So going back to this mindset that this is the only way that we can work. But of course, that's shifted and it's going to stay that way. I think the other thing that we're seeing is this over reliance on data. And occupancy. So, you know, offices were probably only ever at a maximum of 70% occupancy before COVID. But now that we have all this technology, we've decided that, you know, we look at the data, there's a big gap there, we're going to shave another 10%, another 20% off the real estate portfolio. And so the result of that is smaller floor plates, um, smaller offices, more crowding, more density, more irritation between workers. And you know, no real thought about the acoustic impact of that. So that's a real risk that I see. And then people don't want to come to the office because they don't feel comfortable physically. There's too many people around. It's too hard to find a desk. So I think if we are going to have offices that are different uh, for a different purpose now, perhaps we're going to the office to catch up with colleagues and have that social connection and those collaborative type of meetings and days, then we need to make sure that People can do that comfortably, both acoustically, physically, without all sitting on top of each other. And I'm not sure the conversation has moved there yet because everyone's still playing catch up, trying to Mm. figure out what's going on. And, you know, CEOs certainly aren't thinking enough in that way. Mm. I mean, this is presumably the question everyone asks, um, but you're someone who's looking at workplace and workspaces and all the research from around the world all the time. What do you think the workplace is going to look like in five years, ten years' time? What What's the next sort of shift? I think it's going to be very much experience-led where we will think about what's the psychological state that I need for the type of work I have to do today. And that's going to change mm. during the day because we don't all just do one thing. So some of the day might be a creative task. Some of it's going to be analytical problem solving. Some of it's going to be boring admin. Apologies to anyone that loves admin. Some of it's going to be meetings and collaborative work. And so what is going to work, I think, and what the future is that we're going to identify the state that we need for that work, the type of space that's going to support that in an ideal world an office would be able to support all types of activities, but that's probably not reality for every organisation. And people may not 
want to commute and want to move around. So, you know, we've seen companies like LinkedIn refit their building too in San Francisco. They now have 75 different types of workspace. So you can choose, um, you can move around. But I do think the city is now the whole, you know, it's a workspace. It's a distributed workspace. So we might go to a cafe for a meeting or a particular type of activity. There's co-working groups that go to the Met in New York. You know, that has a huge impact on creativity being in a, a particular space like that. So I think we will not just go and sit in one space for the entire day. I think we'll move between spaces, whether that's in an office in one building for our company or throughout the city, which is actually much better for us physically. Mm. It's much better for us creatively. So our brains like visual complexity. They like interest. They get quite, our brain gets very bored with sameness, you know. It's looking for more detail. And so the city is a really great rich landscape to provide that in terms of a range of different options. You you were talking earlier this afternoon, we were talking um about that idea or the the response when we go into spaces that are reverential or out of the ordinary. Um, Can you just expand on that a bit? Yeah, it's something that's really interesting. I think what we don't realise enough is how much the physical environment influences uh, influences us mentally, physically, emotionally uh, and in terms of our performance because we think that that has to be conscious but a lot of it is actually unconscious. It's an unconscious psychological response. And so in this particular study, uh, the researcher put people into what we would call quite reverential buildings. Um, So some of those may be more spiritual or religious buildings, but others were just very significant pieces of architecture with, you know, curved ceilings and, you know, high high ceilings as well. Um, And what he found, he used a mobile brain scanner and put that on on the subjects in the study and just putting them into the space without doing anything else put them into a meditative state and so I think that's quite fascinating if anyone who's tried to meditate knows how hard it is (laughs) after five minutes you think oh three minutes I want to give up this is terrible right so the physical environment can actually move us into different states so creativity you know more of a mindful state a relaxed state, a state that will restore our brains and our energy levels, uh, states that will reduce our stress. And we need to be much more conscious of that because that is the key to high performance. That is the key to well-being. And at the moment, we just think we'll stick someone in an office, no matter how nice it is, all day at a desk, and it's just not really going to cut it. Mm. Now, we're at Bond Uni today as part of um, Bond Uni's research week. Um, And... Two of the projects we've been talking about today um, while I've been here, uh, one is a, a study uh, that Bond did um, partly in conjunction with Resonate uh, as well as uh, the AAAC, the Association of Australasian Acoustical Consultants, um, who helped uh, with that study and the other one that was done with, with Marshall Day and myself. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit to our listeners about what those two studies were and what um, the, the findings or the takeaways from them were? Yeah, these were two really fantastic pieces of work because often research into offices is done where we're getting subjective responses from people. So we're giving them surveys, we're asking them how they feel about a space, what effect we think it's having on their performance or their stress or, you know, what's the acoustics like. And that has a value and a place, of course, but we don't really know objectively because someone could say... I don't feel very stressed here. I don't think the noise or the 
the design is affecting me. But then when we test people objectively, we find that that is quite different. So what we did in the first study is we looked at standard open plan office noise. So not very significant. And we'll link the study uh, for people to access um, on open access map. And so we tested them uh, in terms of their stress levels. So using galvanic skin response uh, and heart rate variability. And we found that a standard level of open plan office noise increased their stress level by 34%. And it also made them in a 25% worse mood. Which is just what you want from your co-workers. Just what you want to be sitting around people who are in a 25% worse mood. Some people don't even like their co-workers to start with. Um, So we used objective mood assessment as well as subjective mood assessment. And then for the stress, we used purely objective measures. And so that was very significant because it showed a causal relationship. We controlled for everything else. So it's just the noise that is causing this massive increase in stress and a pretty significant increase in negative mood as well. And so that publication has got a lot of attention um, in industry and in media around the world, in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, because this is the thing people complain about the most in offices is noise. And to understand that, okay, they're not just whinging, um, actually it really has a significant effect and they don't get used to it. They might hear it less, but their body physiologically does not habituate to that noise. Mm. And then the study... And, and, and just sorry. on that first mm. one, that the type of noise that you're introducing is is not some weird or super loud noise. It's just no. office, you know... Background office noise. Background so noise. Voices, you know, the coffee machine, um, the, you know, the photocopier, just the very standard yeah. office noise. And so... It was quite surprising. You know, we weren't expecting such a dramatic response. And yes, it is. It's a causal link. So it's it's purely the noise that's causing the increase in stress and negative mood. So it's something that I think is great to have this data that can't be explained away with, mm. oh, you know, you know, they were having a bad day or because yep. you know, we control for all of these yep. things that people who are listening who might be working in this space can take to CEOs, can take to decision makers and say, hey, what is the cost of your staff being at 50% of their capacity, mm. at being, you know, at these elevated stress levels? How is that going to impact their well-being? How is it going to impact their engagement? Because payroll is the number one cost for every organisation. Every organisation is struggling to find and keep good talent. And yet, unfortunately, even in the best office design, we often get to the end and they look at, oh, the acoustics costs how much? Let's just wipe that out. Can't even see it on the drawing. <laughs> Pull it back. What is that? Um, and so to be able to say, yeah, you could do that, but here's likely to be the effect. Yeah. And what is that going to cost you 150% off salary every time somebody leaves your organisation in mm. turnover, um, interruption to client service, knowledge loss, all of those sorts of things. So... You know, it's huge. And then... I think the encouraging thing out of that study, though, from an acoustic designer's perspective, is that the sort of noise impact we're talking about is the sort of thing that we would try and design out by diversity of space and by screens in Mm -hmm. in an open plan and, you know, better uh, acoustically absorbent ceiling or a masking system or, you know... more treatments. There's lots of... of, um, Ways of doing Ways that. to design some of those things out. Exactly. And I actually worked uh, with a university in the Northern Territory who redesigned their office, uh, moved to a new office and refitted a building, and they did everything right. Mm. <laughs> they designed it with their team. They spent the money money on acoustics, uh, you know, and it won an AIA 
award, uh, the top award for the Northern Territory. It also won a Digital Transformation Award. But the most important thing was that it actually worked. And so over four years we tracked it and the staff loved it because it's got quite a lot of people and, you know, it's an old warehouse. It's not a huge space. Um, but because everything was well designed with thoughtful spaces for different types of use and they had done the acoustics so well because it was an old tin shed. It used to be their mm. old trades hall. So literally a tin shed in the middle of Darwin or just outside of Darwin. Uh, so you can imagine all the challenges that come with that and particular types of air conditioning systems they have to use up there because of the humidity and, and things like that. Uh, but it was brilliant and the staff absolutely loved it. They still love it. And so it can be done. Mm. And, you know, people aren't leaving. They're more productive. They're happier. They're healthier. So makes a huge difference. Mm. And the second study that we did with yourselves was using VR and spatial audio to investigate essentially what was like a digital twin environment of a classroom to see what is the effect of the acoustic design in this space. And what we found there was that uh, people were not able to remember things. You know, we give them a special task that they are still able to do with a VR headset on because you can't do certain things um, as well necessarily. So we can give you a written test while you've got the headset mm. on. But we give them this test that says go back, you know, two items, what was that? And they had to press a button. And so people in the noisy condition in this simulation in VR couldn't recall effectively, um, you know, what, what they'd heard. And so that... And, and, th and this, I should say, is a... Um because we've got an acoustic audience, yeah. um, it, it, an open plan sort of a classroom, a, a classroom with multiple groups in it. Yes. And, and the comparison was between uh, a speech uh, signal with, um, in one version, no background noise at all, in another version with the sort of chatter of the other groups and uh, an untreated room. So it had sort of, a, I think it was 0.9 second reverb time. And then the third version of it was with the, the background chatter, but with, uh, I think it just had an acoustically absorbent ceiling and maybe some panels and it dropped yeah. the RT down to half a second or something. So, yes. um, it, you know, big differences, as you yeah. said. So your audience appreciates, um, you know, what that is. And if we look at other research that's been done previously with classrooms that don't have acoustic treatment or that's not effective, that kids lose one word in four. And so that's dramatic in terms yeah. of the impact on their learning on how cognitively tiring that is when they're straining to try and hear yep. uh, and they can't as you were saying earlier when we were chatting as well they can't fill in the gap like yeah. if we miss a word we can think i think that that that's the word that should, they don't have well that. and we, we don't even think it we just our brain fills it fills in the gaps because it sort of knows what the the general direction Distance. of the thing's going yeah but if you're learning language and you're learning what the different you know Mass. vowel sounds and <laughs> yeah. you know all the different sounds and mm -hmm. and language and speech it's um you you need a higher level of uh of clarity um, in those classrooms. Absolutely. And that was just for people with a normal hearing, you know, that, that study. Um, it wasn't for people who had impaired hearing or, mm. you know, other, um, you know, ne learning needs in terms yeah. of... Yeah. And, and, and we should say too that the, the, the example in the study was not... The background level was not of a level that the speech wasn't intelligible. Mm. You could still clearly hear it, mm -hmm. but it was just that additional cognitive load of, of you know... Having... 
having to deal with that extra noise. And that's actually a really interesting point, uh, Matt, that people often say, oh, but I can concentrate quite well in an airport lounge or, you know, in a coffee shop, but in the office I just can't seem to if there's this background kind of buzz. Mm. And so one of the reasons for that is that when you're in the office, your brain is always attending to what's going on around you because mm. it might be about you or it might be something you need to know. <laughs> so, might be one of those people with 25% worse mood. <laughs> exactly, who's going off about what you didn't get done with them that morning. Um, but in a coffee shop, that's unlikely to be the case, that it's about you or something you need to know. And so your brain isn't feeling like it needs to attend. And so you can't switch that off in the office. You can't just decide, uh, well, I'm not going to <laughs> attend to those things. And the way people are dealing with that is by putting headphones on, mm. um, which is a solution in some regards to things, but it also uh, isn't ideal to be wearing, you know, noise-cancelling headphones all day. It's not great, and it's also not great for collaboration and interaction. Yeah, we'll bring everyone into the office so we're all together and collaborating, <laughs> and then we'll all put our anti, you know, noise-cancelling headphones on and not talk to each other. Please don't talk to me. So it could be that you, you know, find it too noisy, but often it's it's a social signal as well to go, you know, I don't yeah. want to talk Please to don't you. Talk to me Please now. leave me alone because headphones are like a door now, aren't they? We don't yeah. have doors, but we have headphones. Yeah. Um, so those two studies, one one was in a, an office environment, one was in a, an education space. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen sort of 1970s, 1980s, this shift um, since then really to a dominance in open plan office as, as the workspace mm-hmm. of, of choice. Um, learning spaces have been shifting certainly over the last decade towards more open plan or more of a modern learning environment where it's not just a cellular mm-hmm. classroom with you know 30 students and a teacher yes. on a one-way conversation. Um, are there learnings from open plan office and the experience that the workspace um, world has had mm. uh, that could be applied to education as it makes this transition? Yeah, so I think there's been some uh, discussion and moves around this recently, especially in New South Wales with these multi-group classrooms and they're moving away from those, which I think is great because, look, when you've got a single classroom with let's say it's 30 children and a teacher, then we're seeing a lot of redesign of those spaces to have, you know, the multiple zones, the couches, the different types of tables. And so that's good as long as the acoustics are good around it because you've got, you know, a group of children working with a teacher on presumably normally the same thing. I think where the issue comes in, which, you know, you've said very well compares to open plan is where you've got these multiple classes in one large open space with the idea that they're sharing teaching resources and so forth and I just think that is a terrible idea because (laughs) you've got so I mean it's already difficult enough to get kids to concentrate um, and focus cognitively so you know they're going to be distracted both auditorily and visually by what's going on with those other groups uh, in this sort of collaborative multi-learning space and it makes it you know so much harder for them to concentrate on their teacher and their task so um i think you know it's hard enough for adults we know that adults can't do this effectively so how do we expect children to be able to do this who don't even necessarily want to be at school all the time anyway so i think if we could go back to the single room with different zones and flexibility of the furniture Mm. i think we don't want you know rows of desks and a teacher at the front but not this idea of three or four 
groups of people in one room with different teachers. Interesting. Because I'm, I'm quite contrary to that, actually. <laughs> if, unless we can do the acoustics well, I should yeah. qualify. Convince me that we can do that well with the acoustics. But I think even with the acoustics, it's the visual distraction. Yeah. You know, every time you add more people into a space, you're amplifying the visual distraction. And I think most teachers would say that's very challenging because mm. they're already distracted immediately by their friends. But then, oh, what's happening over there? That looks like it's fun. But yeah, I'm... I'm willing to be convinced that we can yeah. design it well. I think it's uh, look. I think it's a lot of the same things with with offices in that you've got to have diversity of space, mm. um, but you've got the the different overlay compared to offices where you've got um, a teaching cohort that you don't have in an office. In, mm, in that's right. That same sort of context, yeah. um, and so again, like an open office with diversity of space, you have different affordances in. Mm. Um, you know, a space that has maybe sort of three, um, you know, class mm-hmm. worth of students and three teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do, you can work in a different way and learn in a different way. And I think that's, there are kids that learn well in a didactic model where you stand yes. up the front and you take Talk. some information. <laughs> um, but there's others that don't take to that so well. Um, and I think as we move forward into the sort of next generation of, of students and into the workforce, it'll be those kids that um, that have learnt how to learn mm. and learnt how to sort of problem solve and work mm-hmm. through um, things. So I, I can sort of see from a, a learning and project and inquiry-based um, model that, you know... I, like I, I look at my son and think, gee, I reckon that might work for, work him. for him. I, and I look at some of his friends and I go, I don't, I don't think that would work for them. So I don't know it's one size fits and all. but um, That's the challenge, isn't yeah. it? And same with workspaces, one size fits all. But I think even if we've got a single teacher classroom, we should have different zones within that room. We should have different um, yeah. activities where it is more activity-based yeah. learning. And I think a lot of, you know, we're seeing schools move towards definitely, that more and definitely. more. So I think that teaching model for sure. And look, if we had a larger space that was well-designed with some kinds of visual partitions um, I, and we can manage the noise effectively, then, yeah, I think it could work. But I think mm. it's it's those two things of the auditory and visual distraction mm-hmm. that are real challenges that we would have to address. Yeah. I think the other... Uh, the other I'm a big advocate for making the the acoustics in the in these spaces as excellent as they can possibly be, and and this is what I'm about to say by no means diminishes <laughs> that, but having a teacher cohort in a space like that mm-hmm. that has leadership from the the top level of the school that says this is our pedagogy, this is how we learn mm-hmm. together, um, and then the teachers work together as a group to teach a group, Mm. not as three teachers with a separate lesson plan. I'm going to teach French and and you teach German (laughs) um, next to each other. Um, Where I've seen that model work is where the teachers and the culture, like the teachers are working together and the Mm. culture is just totally clear about this is how we we work. Um, And and equipping teachers Mm -hmm. with the skills in how to manipulate space, how to to use the space. Um, because it's not something I think that my understanding is it's not something that the universities are teaching no. as part of the teaching degree. Mm, so exactly. you then drop a student, uh, drop a teacher in a classroom and they do it a certain way and then one day you say, hey, there's no walls between you and next door now and what do you do? good luck. Exactly. I think that's, that's where it really comes off the rails. 
Yeah, so we don't um, have a teaching degree here at Bond, but you're absolutely right. It is a different way of facilitating, and so there needs to be thought into that. And also, yeah, just how to manage from the teacher perspective. Um, so we've talked a lot about the uh, the, the work side, um, but for you personally, what what is next for you? What what gets you out of bed and into Bond Uni in Exciting. the morning? What's what's uh, what's on the horizon, or what's the thing that gets you motivated? So really interestingly, we're about to start a pretty big research project uh, with the World Bank, and so they actually approached us because before COVID they moved back in some of their offices to having private offices, which is quite contrary to what we're seeing. Pretty unusual. Yeah, most workplaces in the world now. And they also did a number of other things. They didn't just plonk private offices back in. So um, they, you know, really entrenched biophilic design into the building right from the roof. They've got bees on the roof. They've got vegetable gardens. They've got a lot of texture. Um, sculpture, art throughout the building and they've seen some pretty spectacular anecdotal results for this transition both to the biophilic design and having these private offices so we're going to be looking at uh, people who've had that transition in uh, Washington, in France and in a couple of countries in Africa to try and understand what the mechanisms are. So for me, yeah, what gets me excited is, you know, really just getting into the weeds of understanding, you know, what's the science, what is causing X to affect Y and how can we create optimum spaces and also the way of working on top of that because it's not just the spaces we can give people the best office in the world um that have a sociopathic boss and toxic work culture (laughs) the space isn't going to make any difference whatsoever unfortunately uh and vice versa you know Mm. we have these great so much effort put into leadership and culture and work environment and work design and then we have these awful spaces that are literally stressing people out and making them unwell in some cases so you know for me it's it's marrying those both together to say you know how can we do this better because there has been nowhere near the focus uh, you know up until recent years on workspace design as there has Mm. been on things like you know environmental psychology and retail where there's a really clear we want to get you in the store we're going to keep you as long as possible and get you to spend as much money as possible so we know a lot about the environmental psychology of how to design a retail store to achieve those outcomes but the workplace kind of just fell off the cliff a little bit which is really interesting that there's you know there's a lot of money spent understanding retail we were talking before about um uh, gaming and mm-hmm. you know the amount of time and money in data analytics to to yeah. understand gaming right and, and how people are you know how to get people to put more, put more money, money in and you know yeah. um but but workplace is about productivity mm-hmm. we we you know an employer pays a uh you know an annual lump sum of money mm-hmm. to an employee and they want to get a return out of that yeah. um but we we haven't seemingly the there's a bit of a disconnect between yeah. what we're willing to pay mm-hmm for work as a productive workplace yeah um i think we got into this mindset unfortunately we can blame everything on the hawthorne experiments with it which were decades ago which were you know we thought that altering lighting levels and things that was done in factories would have you know this dramatic impact on worker productivity and well-being and what they found um more interestingly at the time was that 
you know, people changed their behaviour when they were being monitored for a start, which of course is no surprise. But then when people had attention, so when the manager was paying them attention and, and interested in their well-being, that that had a big effect on their productivity. And so what happened then was it spawned a whole stream of um, research focusing on on those aspects and the work. They thought, well, the physical work environment actually doesn't really matter. We're not going to bother about that. So it was literally decades and decades before it came back on the radar to go, well, yes, of course, work design and the interaction with your leader and the social environment you're working in and all of those things matters. But hey, the physical environment actually makes a huge difference as well. Mm. And we've now got this mindset that, yeah, grey carpet, grey walls, the dead plant, doesn't matter. You just come to the office and work. But, you know, if we sat intuitively for a minute and thought, well, no one has their house like that, do they? Everyone wants to make their house nice or whatever their version of that is. But when was the last time you went to someone's house and they had grey walls and grey carpet and dead plants? I mean, I, I haven't been to anyone's house <laughs> like that. Um, so, of course, it affects us a lot. And, yeah. you know, finally now we're getting the science coming back on it clearly. Mm. And so where can people find out more about your work? So the easiest place to sort of get links to everywhere, detailed um, research papers and things like that is just on my website, which is libbysander.com, and you can find links to social and all the other places where we're sort of posting about what's going on. Brilliant. And we'll put up the links to the uh, those two research papers. Yeah, and they're open access so people can read all the detail and all of the uh, excruciating bits about what the acoustic levels were and all the treatments that we did. And you're not the only person on this podcast who has a podcast. <laughs> That's true. Although I think yours has been going a little longer than mine now. <laughs> What's your podcast called? So mine is called The Floor Plan. And uh, you can find that on Apple Podcasts under yeah The Floor Plan. And also we'll put a link. You can find it on Spotify there as well. And what's the focus on the So we're the looking at plan? the uh, bit of fun and the science. So yeah. my co-host is Matt Weber, who's a, a former ABC radio uh, broadcaster. And we're looking at, you know, different topics about things like can we really work from anywhere? What makes a good teamwork? How do we design the ideal workspace? So looking at some of the, the fun and horror stories that most people experience in the modern workplace, if you've been sent on a horrible team building retreat, but then also... The, you know, the, the episode on the uh, the cult workplaces. The cult workplaces <laughs> as well. So, um, But then we look at the science as well with uh, you know ourselves. We discuss it and then have uh, expert guests on talking about what do we know and tips for how we make it better and what's going to happen in the future great well libby thanks so much for your time my pleasure lovely to chat man.